Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Rising Laterally podcast. This is Arjun Sachdev. And this is Jay Ballou. We hope you find something here that offers you new meaning or a fresh perspective. If you do, we encourage you to give it life. Be bold. Experiment. And most importantly, bring it into the interactions with the people you surround yourself with. And see what happens. Today's guest is Dr. David Hanscom, author of the book's Back in Control, and Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? David is an orthopedic spine surgeon who performed complex surgery for over 30 years. As part of his practice, David has helped hundreds of patients go pain-free without surgery using well-documented treatments that the medical establishment has largely ignored. It's fascinating work. It's very important work. It's timely work. Uh, David himself has suffered from intense chronic pain for 15 years, uh, so he knows the struggle on a personal level. If you're considering having spine surgery or any kind of surgery, if you're suffering from some kind of chronic pain, or if you're just interested in getting a medical perspective on the foundations for health and wellness, this episode will certainly have something for you. David, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Well, I think we should start with your history as a spine surgeon. When did you start performing surgery and when did your practice expand to include the non-surgical treatments you offer now? Um, I started practicing spine surgery in Seattle, Washington in 1986. And I practiced there until um, 1998 when I moved to Sun Valley, Idaho for four years. And during that period of time, I was actually a very aggressive surgeon I trained at a very high-level spine fellowship. I was trained that surgery was a definitive answer. I would feel badly if I could not find a reason to do surgery. And at one point, Seattle had nine times the rate of spine surgery per capita as any place in the entire country. And I was part of that. So as well as surgeons who was really aggressive in doing surgery, then in 1993, a paper came out from the state of Washington showing that the success rate of an operation for back pain and the workers' comp population in the state of Washington was 22%. Wow. And I thought it was 90%. I mean, it's a big operation. It's a big commitment. And then the data eventually came out that if you operate in the presence of a fired-up, hypersensitive nervous system, that you can make chronic pain worse 40 to 60% of the time. Wow. So the odds of making you worse are actually double the chances of getting you better. And the problem is once you're worse, it can become permanent people are often much worse off and then no surgeon wants to take care of them or physiatrists or pain specialists or primary care. So I call it the surgical scrap heap. You have an operation that's failed. The surgeon goes on his or her way and lives their lives and you get cast out to to fend for yourself. Then about 1990, I developed severe chronic pain for about 13 or 14 years. I developed 17 different symptoms, both mental and physical. And Nobody could tell me what was going on. I'm a physician. I had access to everything. I get tested. I tried medications. I tried everything. And by 1997, I was in the deepest hole you can imagine. And one of the symptoms I developed, I went from being a fearless spine surgeon, taking on the most complex cases you can imagine. My attitude was bring it on to crippling anxiety in one day. I I developed a panic attack. So I went from being fearless to crippling anxiety. I was still able to practice medicine, but but I was absolutely miserable. And I thought anxiety was a psychological issue, and it is not. It turns out that anxiety is a response to your stresses. It's not the cause. 
Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So let me jump to where we talked about earlier before we get on the air. It's just the essence of illness. Okay, so every living creature, whether you're one-cell bacteria or reptile or my cat or humans, we're all living creatures. And all of us process the environment that we live in in a way to survive and stay safe. And so what happens, here's a human body. We have a nervous system. Our body contains all these sensors in the form of vision, taste, et cetera, that process the surroundings and circumstances. Then your body automatically acts in a way to stay safe. So my cat has the same survival mechanisms that I do. So there's either cues of safety or cues of threat. Mm -hmm. So with cues of safety, I'm full of dopamine, reward drug, oxytocin, the love drug. Yep. Um, Valium type drugs called GABA drugs, oxytocin, et cetera. And then also I'm full of also what's called anti-inflammatory cytokines, which are small proteins that signal regeneration and growth. So that's safety. Most of the time we exist in this neutral zone of just living our lives. We automatically avoid danger. But if you're threatened, your body secretes adrenaline, noradrenaline, histamines, cortisol, and inflammatory cytokines, so your immune system fires up, and so your body responds with physical and mental symptoms. So under threat, your body is full of inflammation, a heightened stress chemicals, your body is on fire, hypervigilant, but that's what it's supposed to do. Right. And so that's insane. So human, so my cat has the same reaction, but humans have an additional characteristic called language. So we put a label on it. We call it anxiety. Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So anxiety is just a description of the sensation that we all feel. And remember that sensation is intended to be so unpleasant that it compels us to take action. Remember the species of creatures who didn't pay attention to these cues didn't survive. Right. right. Yep. So the species who has survived actually has the most intense reaction to the sensation. So again, this thing, so the first thing, so here's the kicker. This unconscious physiological survival reaction processes about 20 million, 20 million bits of information per second. Guess how much the conscious brain processes? Let's take a guess. A million? Yeah. 40. Wow. Okay. Wow. 20 million versus 40. So I thought anxiety was a psychological (laughs) issue. So I spent 13 years in psychotherapy and I tried everything possible you can imagine. And again, it's 40 versus 20 million and it got (laughs) worse and worse and worse. Okay. So let me ask you a rhetorical question that I'm not intending you to get the answer to. I just want you to think about this because if I had one message to give your listeners, this is it. Okay. So anxiety is a survival response. It's necessary for life. You wouldn't live more than two minutes without anxiety because you wouldn't even breathe. Okay. I mean, anxiety is a gift. It's why we evolved, how we survive. But it's what you have. It's not who you are. Mm. It's amoral. There's no conscious to it. It just causes you to survive no matter what. Okay. So it's this massive survival reaction that's not subject to conscious control. How do you decrease anxiety? I guess you make changes to your environment in ways that your non-conscious self will respond more positively to it. So that's a methodology, which again, that's somewhat the correct answer. 
But the answer I'm actually looking for is simply decrease the stress chemicals. Mm. Oh, yeah. Remember, the sensations generated by the inflammatory response. So the way to get rid of the sensation is decrease the stress chemicals. Right, get straight to the source. So there's there's three parts to it. So the first one is to separate your identity from this reaction. The first thing I tell people to do is just get rid of the word anxiety out of your, out of your vocabulary. Mm. And just visualize a large thermometer. And as you get agitated or nervous or whatever, frustrated, just visualize this thermometer going up and just note that my survival response is elevated or my stress response is elevated. And then there's a bunch of categories of tools that drop that reaction down. So the first step is to separate your identity or just just look at it and understand it's a gift, it's necessary, it's valuable, and just but just get rid of the word anxiety and just say elevated survival response. Mm, okay. Okay, so there's two things to do. So how do you drop that response down? And this is what's been fun for me is I started working with Dr. Stephen Porges, who wrote a treatise called The Polyvagal Theory in the 1990s. And he and I and about 150 other professionals meet once a week and have sort of a think tank work group to talk about this stuff. And what Dr. Porges taught us is that the autonomic nervous system or the, or the part that deals with your digestion and heart rate and breathing also fires up the immune system. So he's the one that taught us about cues of safety versus cues of threat. Here's the problem with humans. Thoughts and emotions create the same reaction to your brain that a physical threat does. We know the emotional pain and unpleasant thoughts create the same reaction in the brain that a physical threat does. But the problem is humans can't escape their thoughts, right? Right. You can, you can, you can <laughs> experience some, um, right? But what's even worse of a problem is that suppressed emotions and thoughts are actually more threatening than expressed ones. Mm. Right. So if you experience unpleasant thoughts, your stress chemicals goes up. And if you suppress them, it's even worse. Every human being has this problem. We have consciousness. Right. So if a dog threatens my cat, the dog goes away, my cat lays down and goes to sleep. If your (laughs) boss screams at you, what happens? You bottle it in. You keep racing. You either bottle it in or you go home and obsess about it or whatever it is, but your brain keeps going. Or you even deny it. Sometimes you deny your anxiety, right? And like your body is still producing it. But it's right. That's worse though, right? Yeah, that's that's the repression part. That's what got me in yeah. trouble, by the way, is that to become a major spine surgeon, you've got to repress emotions. Hmm. What, what, kinds no, of, what kinds of emotions, just so we can get inside your head when you're in that role? Well, so first of all, as a physician, we sort of we sort of are self-critical as a culture. Then our mentors criticize us. We work 80 to 100 hours a week. So we have all this stress coming at us with no way to process it. So we just zip it and keep working. We do not complain. So we repress everything. We're tired. We're, we're asked to do things that aren't really realistic. We make mistakes when we're tired, but we can't really talk about it. Mm. We can't seek mental health. We can't seek mental health resources because we get sanctioned by our hospital. Oh, wow. wow. So, so it just isn't part of our deal. So we repress everything. And then being a spine surgeon is stressful. So every, every, because you're always one move away from causing some major problems. And guess what? During a spine surgeon's career, every spine surgeon has major, major complications caused by him or her. I mean, I've paralyzed people with my mistake. It doesn't feel very good. 
There's a research paper that shows when you have a technical complication in surgery from any specialty, there's a 40% chance of having a significant depression within the next 12 months. So we feel terrible about that, but where do we go? We can't talk to anybody. Then just the whole learning thing is with your mentors criticizing you all the time. We're already perfectionistic ourselves. Then our mentors are very perfectionistic and judgmental. And so between the incredible demands, the computer records, the legal hassle, I mean, it just doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Right. So then spine surgery is considered one of the more stressful fields because perfection is expected. We expect perfection. The patients expect perfection. We all want perfection, but it just isn't possible. Mm. So you're on this tightrope every day you walk into the operating room, you're on a tightrope. So yeah, the stress is insane. Yeah. So we just stuff it. I mean, my, my, my nickname in high school and college was the brick. And my, and the way I coped with my, first of all, I didn't even know what anxiety was. Mm. I was 28 years old and I admitted a patient to my orthopedic ward with an anxiety disorder. I had to go to the textbook to look it up. I didn't know what it was. Oh, wow. Wow. So I was so empty. Part of the problem is I was raised in a very chaotic background. My life was filled with anxiety. My life was filled with anxiety and anger. So it was normal. That was my baseline, right? So then just stress kept coming at me. I just kept processing and processing and processing and just stuffing it, stuffing and stuffing it. Then at age 37, I was driving across the 520 bridge in Seattle and I had a panic attack. Hmm. So what Dr. Porges calls it, which I think is really an really excellent term, is just I had a dysregulated autonomic nervous system. So what a panic attack it is, is a huge release of adrenaline, cortisol, and histamine. And your heart races, you want to pass out, you're sweaty. It's a horrible experience. You think you're going to die, but really what it is is just a massive chemical reaction. So what happened for me is when the, it's like a top blowing off a pressure cooker, when it exploded, it just, it just went crazy. Once that happened, I couldn't stop it. So for the next 13 years, I was in this tailspin and then my body was constantly full of these stress chemicals. So I had 17 different physical symptoms. So what happens is that let me, so let me jump way back in the equation again, and don't make it to come back to this spot. So what happens is that um, the way your body develops symptoms is that, think about this for a second. Your body is interacting with the environment or your surroundings in a way to keep you safe. So in cues of safety, your body chemistry is great and you feel relaxed. And cues of threat, your body is full of these stress chemicals, but that translates directly into physical symptoms. So your inflammatory markers are up. Every organ responds in its own different way. So I had migraine headaches. My ears were ringing. My feet were burning. Skin rashes were popping up. My stomach was a mess. I had back pain, neck pain. It just went on and on and on. Turns out that anxiety, by the way, is an inflammatory disorder. Hmm. So where the psychology comes into play is that mental threats, in other words, thoughts and emotions are the psyche. Yep. They come in and create that reaction, but the actual reaction is physiological. Hmm. The reason why this is such a critical point to everybody is that we keep trying to treat anxiety psychologically. Again, the mismatch is huge. And so when you remember the antidote to anxiety is control. When you lose control, you become angry. Hmm. So right now we have a very anxious, reactive society that's very destructive. Remember, anger is only about survival. It's also necessary. You can't get rid of it. You don't want to get rid of it. 
but you don't want to take destructive action when you're in the angry mode. So anyway, going back to the physical symptoms or, or mental symptoms, your body processes the environment. You develop mental and physical symptoms based on how you process the environment. So that's why there's so many physical symptoms and mental symptoms, because there's so many different cells in the body that react in a different way to the same chemical environment. Am I, am I making sense here? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Question off of that, actually, is there a relation to when your brain starts to memorize this pain? Right. So what happens is that with, okay, so acute pain, it just says acute pain just says danger. Just mm-hmm. like mental pain just says danger. Chronic pain has no use. Chronic pain is the acute pain circuits gone awry. What happens is that the circuits keep firing when the stimulus is gone. So what happens with with repetition, I think that the mental pain is actually the basis of chronic pain because you can't escape your thoughts. You're bombarded with thoughts. The same brain circuits get fired up as with physical pain. I think the essence of chronic pain is the inability to escape thoughts. Wow. Wow. So with repetition, your brain memorizes, like an athlete, like a baseball player, baseball pitcher takes tens of thousands of hours in pitches to memorize how to throw a baseball, concert pianist. I mean, high-level performers takes repetition to, to perform that skill. The problem with thoughts and physical sensations is that they come into your brain like a machine gun. Yeah. So they get memorized very quickly. So we know from MRI scan data, that your circuits become memorized within six to 12 months. And you've all short times. Yeah. All things considered. Yeah. And you think about phantom limb pain, right? Which I'm just curious from your perspective, what's your impression of phantom limb pain? Well, I think it's fascinating that, you know, for example, you can lose the hand and your brain still thinks it's there. So you may have an itch or you may have a tingle, but you actually don't have the physical hand. And to me, that signals that there's been that pattern that's been memorized or ingrained in the neurons in your mind or in your brain that are making you feel that way. Right. See, some of the business or the field of medicine knows this, but nobody's ever really taken this to heart is that that is the essence of chronic pain, right? Hmm. Because there's no limb. You can't do more surgery on a limb that's not there. And it's incredible that the brain memorizes things like that. So 55% of people feel phantom, I'm sorry, 95% of people have phantom symptoms. 55% of people feel the same pain they had before the limb was amputated. Wow. Interesting. So if you you have chronic back pain, let's say, and it's not a structural issue, even though your back is still there, it's not like a phantom limb that still exists in the physical world, the pain itself might not be actually located or caused by something going on physically in your back it's a mental um state that your body that your mind is sort of assigned to your back i i think you said that really quite well but i'm going to try to clarify that a little bit Mm -hmm. so where do you experience pain i I want to say it's in your mind now that we're having this conversation right okay but where historically where do you okay say say your back hurts where's the where's the pain historically in your back no Mm. there's nothing in your back that says there's pain there's pain receptors in your back Mm. but there's nothing in your back that says that is pain Hmm. 
So if you haven't slept or you're exercising a little bit or you're just not feeling good, your tolerance for having back pain is much different than when you're feeling really good. Hmm. So you have the same stimulus. So one day it's painful and the other day it's not. The difference is, remember, pain is simply the brain interpreting signals from your body that says danger. Right. So for whatever reason, for acute pain, by the way, not chronic pain. So for back pain, for instance, when you lift something too heavy or bend or twist wrong, or you tweak a ligament or muscle, why it hurts. It's supposed to hurt because it protects you. People that are born without pain fibers actually don't survive because they can't protect themselves. Mm. But the signal sent from these the pain fibers in your back, up into your spinal cord, up into your brain, then your brain says, okay, this is okay. Or your brain says, this is danger. Then it forces you, forces you to stop the activity that's causing the problem. So that's acute pain. With chronic pain, again, going back to the phantom limb example, is that with repetition, these fibers can get memorized, then the back pain continues no matter what. But there's a whole other level here, which we may or may not want to get into here. Let's, let's talk about just back pain for a second. So like I said before, I think that the mental pain is a much bigger problem, problem than the physical pain. So even though I'm a spine surgeon, and we're going to talk about back pain for a second, I don't want to get too distracted, distracted on the fact I think the mental pain that manifests as anxiety is by far and away the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about back pain just for a second. So in your back, in your lower back, have you heard the term degenerative disc disease? We encountered it in your book. Yep. Have you heard that before you read my book at all or not so much? I have not, no. Not so much. The most common reason to do surgery is for degenerative disc disease. We're up to over $20 billion a year for that diagnosis being a cause of pain. Wow. It's the one it's the one anatomical finding in the body that has been documented to not be a source of pain. Hmm. It is well, being operated on. Right. Hmm. Number one. Second of all, we know that lack of sleep actually causes chronic back pain. There's a major study out of Israel that shows that lack of sleep is a four-year prospective study, very well done study, that shows that lack of sleep actually causes back pain. I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question again. Again, I'm not expecting the correct answer, but I just want the audience to think about this. Okay, why would that be? I mean, I was shocked. I mean, as a surgeon, I always thought that people couldn't sleep because of the chronic pain, but the data didn't show that. The data did not show the other way around. It showed that the data clearly showed that the first thing that happened for people with chronic, chronic low back pain was that they couldn't sleep. Hmm. So again, I'm going to ask you the question, why do you think that's the case? Because I didn't know the answer for four years. Well, I wonder if, you know, you're in a heightened state of stress that makes it difficult to sleep. And then when your body is underslept, it feels like it's in a state of danger, which may be producing the pain. Very, very close. That's an excellent answer, by the way. So that's close. The only part that you're missing there is that when you're under that state of danger, it causes your vagus nerve or the sympathetic nervous system to go out of balance. So it's inflammatory. Mm. Oh, mm. right. And then we have, so most of that pain is what's called myofascial pain. So you have what's called trigger points. And there's data from 2005 that shows that when you're under stress, the sympathetic nervous system or the survival part of the nervous system fires up and it sensitizes the tissues. It sensitizes these muscle spindles and creates trigger points. So when you talk about stress, 
your body's vagus nerve responds in kind, your sympathetic nervous system responds in kind, but these muscle spindles become sensitized. Hmm. Okay, not imaginary, not psychological. And so when you actually push on that spot, it hurts because of the imbalance between your autonomic nervous system. So what happens is that the vast majority of back pain is muscular, fascial in nature. Again, disc degeneration has been very definitively been shown in multiple studies that it is not a cause of pain. So rupture disc, bulging disc, herniated disc, degenerated disc, spine arthritis, none of those have been documented to be a source of pain. Wow. Yet we're upwards of $20 billion a year in spine surgery. The success rate is less than 30%. There's not one research paper that, is, that has compared good spine care to back surgery. And there's not, there is not one paper that shows that back surgery actually works. Yet there are thousands of papers documenting all sorts of effective treatments for chronic pain. Guess what the problem is? The effective treatments are not covered by insurance. That is a simple problem. Wow. Wow. So I can, I can give you a list of 15 interventions that are effective for chronic pain. They are not covered by insurance. Seems so, like by so, design. Uh, it's no. really frustrating to put it mildly. I quit my practice to do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen so. So I did write the book Back in Control, a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. I just released a, a process last week called the doc journey, the direct your own care journey. It's at www.thedocjourney.com. It's a much more efficient way of getting people through th- from pain to no pain. Most physicians think that chronic pain is to be managed, not cured. We have found that chronic pain is extremely solvable using self-directed methods. So the doc journey is a self-directed process that allows people to take charge of their own care. So the medical profession is not going to do it. I would love to change the insurance system for sure, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. So I watch hundreds and hundreds of patients go to pain-free with minimal resources these are people with 20, 30, 40, 50 years of chronic pain, pain-free. They're fine. Wow. I had one gentleman with 27 surgeries in 20 years. He's fine. He's been fine for five years. <laughs> wow. Another girl, neck pain for four years, very young. She was 32 at the time I met her. She had had 10 different physicians, six neck injections, high-dose narcotics, and in, and in one week, she went to pain-free. She's That's been pain-free now for seven years, right? So it's, just, it's so the way you solve chronic pain, okay, so I'm going to go back. I keep segueing off of this. So let's go right back to the very concept of why do we get sick? Yeah, your immune system. So that, that's partially correct. So you have you, this is you and your coping skills. And if you're raised in a very safe and nurturing environment, you have much higher coping skills than somebody who is raised in a chaotic or abusive environment. And the comparison might be that of a feral cat compared to a domestic cat. So with a domestic cat, that cat is calm, relaxed, has lots of resources, can deal with all sorts of things. Where a feral cat is hypervigilant all the time. And you can't really tame it and it can't really feel safe. So if you come from a safe environment, you know how to live the world in a safer way because you know what safety looks like. If you're raised in a chaotic, abusive environment, what does safe look like? You don't really know. I didn't, I did not know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just, okay. So you have your coping skills. Then you have your circumstances. When your circumstances 
overwhelm your coping skills, what happens? You're now under threat. Right. Yep. And your body responds with all these chemical changes and you develop symptoms. So symptoms are an interaction between the circumstances and you. Then you, then you treat, then you have the symptoms out here. What medicine is doing is unacceptable. In other words, you're treating only the symptoms. The root cause is this interaction between you and the environment. And so the way you solve chronic pain is that you improve ways of processing the environment. Remember the most stressful stress is the stress that you can't control. Mm -hmm. But there are ways of processing it in a way that actually minimizes the impact. Then you can also find ways to increase the resiliency of your nervous system. So by increasing the resiliency of your nervous system and dropping down the way, I'm sorry, dropping down the impact of stress on your brain, then the symptoms start to drop down. If you're treating just the symptoms, it's like trying to put out an oil well fire with the water, with the garden hose. I mean, the fuel is still coming in, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So in the, in the U.S. alone right now, we have 150 Americans with, with at least one chronic disease, over 50%, over, let's see, 30% of those people have five or more chronic diseases. Wow. Every one of those is inflammatory. Every one of those has been connected to inflammatory markers. So cardiac disease, peripheral vascular disease, obesity, adult onset diabetes, Alzheimer's are all inflammatory disorders. Anxiety, depression, bipolar, and um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, are all inflammatory disorders. Mm. And the data is deep. There are hundreds of research papers documenting the link between inflammation and these different physical and mental manifestations. So um, this is not new news. And what's disturbing to me as a physician, I spent my entire career, this has been in the literature for a long time. I didn't know this stuff. I met Dr. Portis a year ago, and in, and in his world, the autonomic nervous system world, the polyvagal theory, this is common knowledge. What's been exciting and disturbing to me at the same time is that when you start talking between the different disciplines, all of a sudden, all these obvious things come to light. Right. So Dr. Portis did not know much about chronic pain. I did not know much about the autonomic nervous system. And we are so excited about the possibilities, but also disturbed because when people get better, it's not very hard. It doesn't cost much. There's no risk. It's self-directed. And that's important. It is. And it's not, it's not profitable. Mm. Have you confronted a spine surgeon who may be a big proponent of aggressive surgery with this information? I'm just curious, like what the shape of that conversation looks like when you present all of this evidence to people in your former community, what's the response? Do they not want to believe it? Are they, you know, coming back with evidence to the contrary? Like why is there, you know, why are people not inviting this uh, breakthrough into that world? Well, first of all, we're not trained that way. I mean, it's hard to get people to change a way of thinking, right? Yeah. So I don't want I don't want to demonize physicians in general because they work really hard. They're well-intentioned. They try to do a good job, but they just don't have that paradigm in their brain. We, there's nothing about this process that we were trained with, nothing. Hmm. So as a surgeon, I did it for eight years myself. If I hadn't gone through my own serious chronic pain issues, I would have no insights either. Second of all, when you're used to, when you're the surgeon and your identity is wrapped up in doing that, that's what you're trained to do, that's what you do. But the bigger problem, I, who I don't blame the physicians themselves, but I do strongly blame the business of medicine. They kidnapped us, they kidnapped you, they kidnapped me. 
they refuse to let us talk to our patients. And really get so, to know them, right? That's what you're right. alluding to in your book too. Yeah. Right. So think about this for a second. So here you are. You're, so let's say you're my patient and you come to my office. We're making major surgical decisions on the first visit. You don't mean, you don't know me. I don't know you. So I don't know you. I don't know your coping skills. I surely don't know your circumstances. And that's the interaction that you have to know. That takes time, right? Okay, so that's the interaction that has to be looked at carefully. It's not that hard to solve. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. This actually doesn't take much time because once the patients understand the problem, they solve it themselves. Yeah. It's not that hard. So it's, so what happens instead of throwing random simplistic treatments at a complex problem, you, do, you can treat every aspect of it simultaneously and everything counts. For instance, sleep could be 20%. Decrease in anxiety could be, I'm sorry, lowering your stress chemicals could be another 20, 30%. Exercise, 10 to 15%. Chiropractic could be another 10%. Um, so, I mean, there's a bunch of things you combine to calm down your body's chemistry and then it's game on. Mm. So the problem is right now, it's just the way we're trained is really flawed. The data out of Baltimore shows that only 10% of surgeons, either orthopedic surgeons or neurosurgeons that are spine surgeons, acknowledge the data that pretends a bad outcome. 10%. Once I, once I learned the data maybe 10 years ago, and again, I spent 20 years not doing the right thing. Now, I know that, is that I would if you were my patient and you, and you had back pain, I'm sorry, let's say you had a surgical lesion. First of all, why you wrote the book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery, is that you can't operate on something unless you can see what the problem is. So the first step is, is this surgical or not surgical? Most spine surgery being done right now is on problems that you can't see. It's not logical. Hmm. So the, the first question is, do you need surgery or do you not? Or can you do surgery or not? Then what the data says to do is to do what's called rehab before surgery that I call prehab. So for 12 weeks, we would take the concepts basically outlined in the doc journey. It was self-directed. I did not have a pain clinic. I did not have psychiatrists. So we take it through a process of just calming down the nervous system. And my surgical outcomes were spectacular. I had over 100 patients with surgical lesions that I had on the schedule, ready to go. They came in for their final preoperative visit. Their pain was gone. Wow. They canceled the surgery. These were even surgical lesions. So at the last couple of years of my practice, my operative rate was down to about four and a half percent. Wow. I basically put myself out of business on elective surgery. Right, right, right. And it and had like, they gone had they gone forward with the surgery, it most likely could have made the chronic pain worse based on that statistic you shared earlier. Well, okay. So of all the patients I did this process on, about a third of them went on to surgery with spectacular results. And so I had the same surgical failures everybody else did. But what happened is that my infection rate went down because what you're doing is you calm down the inflammatory markers. I mean, what prehab does, it calms down the inflammation. So my wound healing was better, less surgical wound breakdown, almost no infections, less pain afterwards, better rehab. And I would tease my fellows. I said, look, when was the last time you saw a surgical failure in my clinic? Now I was doing surgery the same way but I was prepping them so much better that the outcomes were just unbelievable. I mean, I wasn't having the surgical failures I had years before, but the nervous system was calmed down. The body's immune system was optimized. Their nutrition was optimized and the complications dropped through the floor. 
but I, I wasn't expecting people with surgical lesions to get better. So let's say I did the prehab and I did the surgery, they did great. So all the patients I'm talking about actually would have done well with surgery, but they just didn't need it. Now, there's a huge group of patients and why are we having so much trouble with spine surgery that simply don't have anything that you can see on a test. There's nothing there. It's like if you go to a, a dentist with mouth pain and you don't know where the pain's coming from and start doing random procedures, how's that going to work? Right, right. I mean, I don't know if you guys think this, but in general terms, I mean, there's this, I'll use the word urban legend that if you've tried everything else, let's try surgery. Is that, a, is that something that you feel yeah. like you've heard? Yep, I've heard that. That's been deadly for everybody. You have to see it before you can fix it. Hmm. The other component around that that I found interesting was it seems like the medical community will opt for the larger, complicated operation instead of the more simpler ones. And there's two elements to that. First of all, if you did go with the simpler one, you gave yourself room to actually try the more complicated surgery if that's necessary. Correct. But more importantly, what struck me was it was like a symbol of society. We tend to do more complicated things when just the simple uh, task can do it. Or, you know, we've talked about this, this in the past where people like to use big words when a simple word can just be used. Right. And when you were talking about that, that struck me as well as something that was pretty interesting around the what the community does. Yeah, that's a wonderful point because what's happening now is instead of doing one and two level fusions that don't work, we're now doing eight, 10, 12, and 14 level fusions that don't work. And the complication rate for a scoliosis surgery is like 75%. Mm. Those are horrible complications. Mm. So, um, so let's just sit back for a second. I mean, I've covered I, my, you know, I get excited about this, so I don't want to overwhelm your audience with too much information. So, um, I wonder if this, I wonder if it's just worth sitting back for a second and reflecting on what we just talked about. Um, the fact that, like, look, we are all under stress. We either a perfectionist, you know, we're trying to figure out like our own self care. We're trying to go through our own conflicts resolutions. We're not trying to figure out our own coping skills. All of these things are at play all the time for all of us. Right. And I, I simply think that there's a lot of masking going on. Um, I think people are living these lives where it's such a normal state for them to be in like that, um, you know, hypervigilant state or angry state that they don't even know that it's kind of killing them. And so I just think that the question to consider is, can your mood really be that great after suffering for so long? Um, and so that's just the cue that you might be suppressing your feelings and suppressing your thoughts. I think that's important takeaway from so far what we've discussed. Right. So let me ask you a question, just in, in reflection of what we've been talking about here the last few minutes is that when you're anxious and angry and agitated, we think of that as psychological, right? But what's happening, right. what's happening to your body? You're producing stress chemicals. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's your, remember, anxiety and anger is your total body's response to the environment. And so one term I do not like to use anymore is the term mind-body. You've heard that term before, mind-body medicine. Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So think about trying to fly a Boeing jet without a computer. How's that going to work? Not very well. Oh, well. <laughs> so how are you going to run the human body without a nervous system? Can't do it. It's a unit. It's just one unit. So it's all intertwined. There's something like 30 trillion cells in the body. There are 80 billion brain cells. There are, each brain cell is connected to 10,000 other brain cells, each one. 
So it's an incredibly complicated intertwined network. And so what happens, we're responding to the environment as a unit. Your brain, you have all these sensors in your body, just like the Boeing jet has flap angles and tire pressures and altimeters. We have all these sensors coming into our nervous system. Then our nervous system is giving output to the body to respond to survive, just like the, the Boeing jet computer is giving signals to the jet how to fly this jet. The Boeing jet has 2 million parts. The human body has 30 trillion cells. So it's a much more complex system, but it's just a unit. One term, I just have to rant. I'm trying not to rant too much. Am I ranting too much today? No, it's been no a lot of great content. Not. Yeah, no. Yeah. Okay, but think about this for a second. Have you heard? Have you heard the term called medically unexplained symptoms? I have not. No. no. Okay, so I'm assuming you've heard that people in chronic pain are just told they have to live with it. They have to manage it. Mm-hmm. Right. They're sort of giving a pat on the head. Well, maybe psychological. Just live the life the best you can. So yeah. you start. To, this you're is your life now. Or this is your life, and it's solvable. So remember, they, so the term, so what happens, chronic pain patients get labeled as malingerers, lazy, drug seekers, all these different things, wimps. Okay, but they have shown in research that the impact of chronic pain on a person's quality of life is similar to having terminal cancer. Hmm. It's, just, it's a horrible impact, but I, they actually showed that it's actually a little bit worse because at least in terminal cancer, you know what the problem is, right? Hmm. Yeah. So in chronic pain, nobody tells you what's going on. You're bounced around and you get labeled. Nobody likes to be labeled. So then the medical profession has come up on this new term called medically unexplained symptoms, which is again, a label. What the doctors are really saying, they're sort of blaming the patient because what's happened, the data is there. Nothing I'm telling you today is new. It's been in the literature for at least 30 years, especially the last 10. So just because the doctors don't know the data and aren't using it doesn't mean it doesn't, I mean, everything's wrong. I mean, they're completely medically explained symptoms based on what we talked about. Your body's on fire. You're full of these inflammatory proteins called cytokines. Your stress chemicals are through the ceiling. And of course, the way your body responds is how you respond to the environment. So, I mean, right now, the two of you look pretty comfortable. You're sitting in a chair and you're sort of at neutral, right? Not particularly agitated. So your body is at neutral. So you don't have to tell me the situation, but just think of the situation in the last two weeks where you get upset at something. Either one of you get upset at something? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. <laughs> By the way, I, I love if you have a chance, if you want to join the doc journey, it's not just about pain, it's about anxiety and anger. It just It's just an incredible freeing experience to be able to process anxiety and anger in a way that allows your creativity to emerge and thrive. It's been yeah, a remarkable process. So just for life skills, it's been a great thing to do. But anyway, so think about the time you were angry. What did that feel like? Tight. What else? Yeah. Charged with sort of negative energy. Like it's a feeling of, when I get angry, it's a feeling of being balled up. It's like a feeling of contracting in a very uncomfortable way. Arjun, what do you think? Not being feeling of not being able to let go. I get into a repetitive thought process usually, like, ah, I can't get that out of my mind. And it just keeps making it worse and worse and worse. So can I ask how old you guys are, just for the heck of it? I'm 34. I'm 29. Okay. And my son's 36. And so um I know you're my daughter's 30 is 30. So your generation has for some reason a lot of anxiety. 
right? Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. seems to be the case. So, yeah. so remember, man, this is this is the most what this is one reason I quit the practice because this is the most solvable part of the process. And remember, now now you have to, now you have to know the answer to the question. So anxiety represents elevated stress response. It's just a name that humans put on this response. So how do you decrease anxiety? Lower those levels that are hitting the cell. Bingo. Okay. So again, it's called the doc journey, the docjourney.com. And it goes from A to Z. And it starts with first embracing your disbelief. I mean, why believe me? You've been in chronic pain for a while. You've been in chronic anxiety for a while. I saw, I saw, I was in psychotherapy for 13 solid years to figure this thing out and it got worse. Mm. It's not, it's not psychological. So mm. as you learn the tools and just drop down the stress response and there's two categories of doing that. One of them is directly. So both of you just drop your shoulders for a second, sit back in your chair and take a deep breath in, let the breath out. And just listen to a sound. That's it. How did that feel? Calming. So you put your brain, instead of being on racing thoughts, your brain simply went to a different sensation. So instead of racing thoughts, making your muscles tight, your relaxed muscles actually gave you feedback the other direction and calmed your mind. So it's called active meditation. There's something called, I'm going to show this to you guys. I know we're just on a podcast, but it's called opening up by writing it down. The first step in the doc journey is called expressive writing. It's going to be write down your anxiety-producing thoughts, tear them up. Mm -hmm. And you can't control your thoughts, but you can separate from them. So the thoughts are here, you're here. There's now a space connected by vision and feel, both of which are part of the unconscious brain. So the major psychologists in the world have found out with an obsessive thought patterns, the only thing you can do is actually write the thoughts down. And you tear them up for two reasons. One of them is to write with freedom. It turns out that the more negative the thoughts that you write down, the more helpful this is, but you don't have to be negative. But the more important reason is to not analyze them because they're just thoughts. So if you're analyzing these things, where's your attention? It's on the on thoughts. The thought, right. right. So the two ways of decreasing stress chemicals is, is one directly with meditation, relaxation, exercise, excuse me, sleep. And the other way is called neuroplasticity, where you actually change the structure of your brain. So neuroplasticity means you're stimulating the formation of new connections, new cells. And so what you're doing is that it's called somatic work. It's based on awareness, separation, and then reprogramming. So you have to feel the pain, mental or physical, then you redirect. So you become aware of your anxiety, become aware of your frustration. And people forget you actually can't feel good unless you allow yourself to feel bad. <laughs> right? You don't yeah. you can't you can't have it both ways. And the reason why people don't want to go through this process sometimes because you have to learn it's a trained skill, you have to do it at your own pace, that you train your brain not to react to these negative thoughts. Just a trained learned skill. What the expressive writing does is not the solution, but it is that one step that separates you from your thoughts. And it's got effects like better wound healing, improves rheumatoid arthritis, asthma, school performance, lowers kidney function, improves liver functions. It is insane with this, it lowers the viral load in AIDS. It is insane what this simple tool called expressive writing does. 
So I put on, I put on a, it's called, so the the book that documents the data is opening up by writing it down by Dr. James Pennybaker. And I put on a major pain summit this weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Dr. Pennybaker is one of our guests. Just this last year, there's over 250 papers, peer-reviewed research papers that documents that it works. There's over a thousand research papers that documents that expressive writing has a major effect on your body. Guess what? I didn't learn one whiff of this in medical school. Nothing. Mm. Mm. And so that's I have a question what, on yeah. Um, if, so I find that interesting because if you're trying to eliminate this negative thought or this negative algorithm that you have in your mind, or as you call it in your book, a detour, and you're writing about it, I can understand how it comes out of your system, but aren't you paying attention to it as you're writing? I mean, I, I kind of get it, but at the same time, I'm a little bit like, aren't you still thinking about it? Like, can you actually eliminate, truly eliminate the pathway is my question. So no. So remember, this is, this is just an exercise. So you're, 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 you can't control the thoughts. If you experience them or repress them, either one of those is a problem. Mm-hmm. So as you express it and separate, and I, I mean, that's my theory. I don't honestly know why, but it's been incredibly consistent. So the thoughts are here. You're here. There's now a right. space between you and your thoughts. So right. you can't control them. And so to me, it's just a separation exercise. Mm, totally. Yeah. It's an awareness and detachment. Aware, right. Awareness and detachment in one move. And then the reprogramming tools, you know, just drop your shoulders for a second, sit back, take that deep breath. And what I've, what I've learned about this deep breath thing that you're going to do is that I thought mindfulness meditation, you know, what the heck, you know, I'm a surgeon, you know, that's just, that's just crazy stuff, right? It turns out what Dr. Porges has taught us is that you're directly stimulating the vagus nerve, which is strongly anti-inflammatory. Mm. So humming, certain pitches of music like lullaby, mindfulness, relaxation, slow breathing, all of these drop down the inflammatory response directly through the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. So for me personally, when I do just right now, what you just did is you just stimulated the vagus nerve. Not some psychological construct. It's a physiological response. Again, it's 20 million versus 40. So as you learn to connect your body's chemistry, which means you have to feel bad or good, either one, then you have the tools to change direction. As you keep changing directions, the new circuits become stronger. As you quit fighting the old circuits, they start to atrophy. So the answer is the anxiety circuits, anxiety circuits can atrophy, atrophy to the point that they are hardly present anymore. Mm. You okay. can't change them, but you and you can't ignore them because again, you're giving them. So it's where you place your neurological attention. So you, you create a vision of where you want to go, and you go. Pain or no pain, anxiety or no anxiety. It's not mind over matter. It's a matter of processing anxiety and anger every day. It becomes a very quick learned skill. So you become triggered less often. You stay anxious and angry less frequently. And for me personally, it's just being let out of jail. And what I'm excited about, this happens all the time, is that people end up thriving at a level they never knew was possible. So this guy had 27 surgeries in 20 years. He's 67 years old right now. He says, I have never felt better since I was 30 years old. He says, I feel better now than when I was 30. So I did not think that was possible after 27 surgeries to feel good at all. Yeah. He's fine. Right. That's incredible. Because what you're doing, you, but it's like building a virtual desktop on your computer where this new desktop doesn't have pain. So I'm now convinced whether it's phantom limb pain or complex regional dystrophy, fibromyalgia, migraine headaches, whatever it is, 
you can create a new set of circuits within your brain that just don't have pain. Right. And then what happens is you create those circuits that has a huge effect on your body's chemistry. So then as your inflammation drops down, your nerve conduction slows down, you have less pain. Mm. Right. Yeah. And that's an interesting distinction between it being mental and psychological, because there is definitely an element of it existing in your mind, but trying to treat it by, you know, going into your childhood or, you know, exploration of, I don't know, past trauma may not be as effective as just bringing your shoulders down, taking a deep breath and like letting go of the thoughts that are beleaguering you in this very moment. It's actually very counterproductive to go into your childhood in detail. Mm -hmm. So it's important to understand childhood, what happened. So what's important to be aware of is that, okay, right now, this very second, you just said something to me, just for example, sake that just pissed me off. Well, it probably didn't piss off Arjun at all. But what happened is that something in my past got triggered by you. Mm. So becoming aware, in other words, anytime you're anxious or angry, something in the present triggers something in the past. It's like Mm. that feral cat analogy we use, that a feral cat has many more things that make them anxious and frustrated than somebody who's calm. So what happens is that you're hyper alert, you're hyper vigilant. There's more things in your present that are dangerous, that seem dangerous, because in your past, they were dangerous. So anytime you're anxious or angry, you're in a reaction. Hmm. And so if you try to fix that with analysis, you're paying neurological attention to it and actually reinforcing those circuits. Hmm. So I have a little saying called savor the second STS. So people think that you intellectually know that in a way, but we actually don't live that way. Right. So there's no goal to the doc journey. There's no goal because where do you, what's the goal? And we all have this idealistic goal who we want to be, what we should be. And I don't know about you guys, but your generation is very goal oriented. <laughs> yeah. Fair statement. Okay. Uh, that's fair. A, you also feel a pressure of time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I had the same thing, but nothing like this generation does. I mean, it's consistent. I have, I mean, I just, I, I just, I'm totally immersed in this. So, the good news is I love, work, love working in your generation because your brains are more neuroplastic than mine, even though mine's still neuroplastic. The changes occur quickly, and literally within four to six weeks after really engaging in the process, your life will change. And it's not some psychological nonsense. It's not about believing David Hanscom. It's just understanding neuroplasticity and choosing where to sculpt your brain. Hmm. So for the folks that are dealing with things like spinal stenosis and lumbar lumbar stenosis, I mean, there's millions of people that have it. You're mentioning, you're suggesting to them that if they go along with the doc journey, they have a pretty good chance of possibly healing themselves, right? For even common things like that is what I'm asking. Oh, yeah. No, what I'm saying, though, is that let's say you're my patient again, and you're in for spinal stenosis, you have leg pain. The data says, again, calm people down, get them to sleep, et cetera. Right. And then if we do the surgery, the results are spectacular and consistent. So I'm not against surgery at all. If you, have, if you oh. have a surgical lesion, let's do it. So my goal is to get you better with or without surgery. But what I don't, so a lot of times when I do the prehab, people will, will cancel the surgery. So if I do the prehab alone, people often get better. Sometimes I add surgery, great. And what happens is that surgery by itself, though, is not consistent. So I never right. do surgery. Okay. I never do elective surgery any, anymore without that prehab process. Mm, okay. 
And again, I like this book. Do you really need a sponsor? It's a shorter book. It's a quicker book. It's much more concise. I mean, it's a very concise book. So within about 90 minutes, you actually know really whether you should or shouldn't have a given spine surgery. Yeah, that's of incredible utility. I know we're uh, we're at the hour here. I was wondering before we let you go, uh, David, if you could tell us a little bit about your thoughts on COVID. We talked about it pre-show and we'd love if you could share some of your insights and thinking with the audience. Yeah, it turns out that the solution for COVID is the same solution as for chronic pain. So we have what's called Plan A. I think I just sent that to you guys, which has 12 categories of things that you can do to lower inflammatory markers with the idea being by taking control of your health, lowering your inflammatory markers, which means if you get sick and these inflammatory markers go up, it stays below that critical threshold. So that's called plan A. And then we have also called a structured approach to COVID-19. So after you get sick, there's a sequence of recruiting the body's own defenses to solve the problem that we think is a very high chance of actually solving the pandemic. Our problem is trying to get people to listen to us. It's an approach. We're not saying this is the end of the line answer, but we're trying to get people to think differently. Like in chronic pain, we ask people to use their own healing resources to heal. I mean, the body evolved by healing itself. And so we're asking doctors when they have a patient who's sick is help the body heal itself. Don't Don't do things to the body that are counterproductive. And so there's a layered approach that we've presented that just takes preparation, then it's recruitment, then it's reinforcement. And again, I would love it if you guys would look at, especially plan A, which which is what people can do to actually help themselves prevent the mortality. It's also a call to action for wellness model for healthcare instead of an illness model. Because by sticking with the illness model, there's a lot of people with chronic disease Those are the ones who are dying from COVID. So the benefits of taking control of your health is you just live a better life, but also you minimize your chances of um, getting seriously ill. Sounds good. Fantastic. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's, uh, something that I think we're all striving for. Uh, and in, in your book, you mentioned like, hey, let's just all try to get to a point where we're, we're just living. Our, our standard of living is better than what it is right now. Right. And a lot of that just comes from like being able to have the authority like within yourself um, to start doing some of this self-healing and be an active participant in the healing process. Yeah, if you guys in a few weeks, if you're in the mood after reading Plan A and Plan B a little, I'm mean, sorry, Plan A and the uh, structured approach stuff, um, it'd be interesting to talk to you guys about those projects alone. Because one thing we're dealing with right now is a lot of um, political division. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, whether you're extreme right or extreme left, why are they doing this? What do they need? What, what need is not being met that allows them to, that causes them to act that way? So again, the major driving force is anxiety. And when you can't control a situation that's causing anxiety, you become angry. Anger is destructive, but anger also protects you. Mm. So you can't give up your anger until you allow yourself to feel vulnerable. Hmm. So it's a learned skill, again, not psychological. As you learn to lower your body's chemistry, allow yourself to be vulnerable, you don't have to get into this angry reactive mode. So the antidote to anxiety is control, which also involves rigid structured thinking. It is irrational. So what the world, I'm going to say something really trite, but what the world actually needs is compassion or love. 
right? Because that's a that's where dropping out inflammatory markers dramatically, but you can't get there intellectually. Remember, it's 20 million versus 40. So the way you get there is that you start teaching the world systematically to start lowering their inflammatory markers. Ah, right. You see what I'm saying? We we tend to look at these yeah. behaviors, but remember the behaviors are the symptoms. Mm-hmm. Right. So look at the interaction. So we have people with poor coping skills and, and overwhelming stresses. Yeah. What happens to the blood supply? Your brain it goes offline. The thinking centers lose their blood supply. Your brain also throws off these inflammatory cytokines in the brain. Your brain is inflamed. Wow. So we know that when you're angry, your brain is on fire. You honestly do not have the capacity to think correctly. Nobody does. Yeah. So and then also, is, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then also you were alluding to this in your book when you are going through chronic pain. Uh, I believe studies show that your brain actually shrinks, reducing yep. some of your cognitive decision-making process. But then it has the ability to expand back once you let go of that anxiety or whatever is stressing every cell in your body well so let's let's i'm just just for fun i'm going to reframe that statement for a second please so do. remember anxiety is just the descriptive term so it's, it's supposed to reframing anxiety just again talk about lowering that stress response and see what happens with the the reason why the brain physically shrinks is that when your brain is inflamed these inflammatory cells actually destroy the neurons <laughs> but mm. see your cortisol levels are elevated which actually robs the cells themselves of glucose that you use to actually supply your body. It's a fight or flight response. So the elevated metabolism actually robs your brain of glucose and fat, and that's why the brain shrinks. Now, does that sound psychological? No. 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 Right. But, but, but again, once, you understand the, once you understand the issue, I mean, the people that get better make a comment consistently that they get better, they do go to pain-free, They are so excited. But what's disturbing, including myself included, and if you guys decide to go through this with me, which I'd love to work work with you guys a little bit, but Mm -hmm. in six or eight weeks, you're going to go, what? I mean, I I talked to a kid this morning who's 26, and I've been working with him now for a month. His headaches are gone. His anxiety is down. He's making new plans, completely transformed himself in four weeks. I didn't do anything. I talked to him and coached him a little bit. Is this not magic? This is not about believing David Hanscom. This is not, this is right. not a belief system. So I say you start with beginning your begin with your skepticism. In other words, it's about connected and engaged thinking. So it's not about generating enough belief in healing or enough believing in the doc journey or David Hanscom. This has nothing to do with that at all. In fact, that's very counterproductive. It's just taking the known neuroscience, stimulating your brain to change in the direction that you want. And once you start changing it, it starts building on itself. So once people cross that tipping point, they actually can't go back because you've changed the filter. Everything comes through a different filter. Your brain keeps changing the direction that you want. Wow. What like getting a software update, getting an yeah. optimization set up for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there you go. I love it. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. This is, uh, yeah, I I'm, I'm definitely will take you up on that, that offer, David. Definitely look forward to future conversations. I've learned a ton. I think that our... Our listeners are probably in the same boat as Arjun and I. Uh, there's so much food for thought here and so much room for self-examination. I think by um, by embracing a lot of what you're teaching um, and what you're sharing with people, you know, there is a way out of uh, the rigid thinking that we've all kind of fallen into, or at least most of us has fallen into. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, no, I'm really excited. You guys are you guys are great. I love it. 
Well, thank you for your presence. And I learned a ton. I can't wait to tell more people about your book. So let me just, let me just say one couple of things here, final things here. So I gave you, I'll use the word, way too much information in your audience. So just take a deep breath and let it settle. And then if you decide to pick up my book, read it at your leisure. It's called Back in Control. The Doc Journey is the action plan of the book. It allows you to go through in a very specific way so you're not overwhelmed with things. But even with the Doc Journey, I say, look, just take your time. This is a lifetime process. It's not like one, two, three, and you're fixed. It's a process. And so just let things settle. I, I just tell people all the time, just give yourself a break. This is new stuff. It's actually the, the other part, which you may not realize, you may be a little exhausted after hearing this because it's new material. You're trying to find a place, is no place for it to land, mm. right? That, where does this land? I mean, it's a completely different concept. So that's why I wrote the book, by the way, because people in the clinic just didn't have enough space for it to land. So just drop your shoulders, take that deep breath. Yeah, keep reminding me to drop it. my shoulders. I realize I keep coming back up. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just let it land and relax. And so you can't change your brain, but you can, you can use tools and allow, and just literally become an observer of your brain changing itself. It's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Well, I know what I'll be doing this afternoon. I'll All be right. letting it land. All, All right. right. Well, so thank much, you David. very much. Okay. Bye. Thank you.